Our scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias. He was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Ananias, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Ananias got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. All right, again, hello. So I'm just warning you, I uh, was trying to be a good human being and take care of my body. I was exercising and I pulled my back this week and I'm half a human being again. But if I make a funny face, it's not you. It's that something hurts on my back. Just letting you know that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the book of Acts and what it teaches us about being your church. And this morning as we come back, uh, and look at this new section of the of this of this history of your church and the continuing work of your son Jesus, the resurrected Lord, as he is working through the leaders and people, uh, men and women in these different cities. We ask that you would please help us to see how we, as your people today, might also uh, serve you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. We are going to be starting a series for between now and the starting of Lent, where we're going to be looking at Acts 9 through 12. This particular section of the book of Acts is focusing on the ministry of Peter and the expansion of the church under Peter's ministry. And so the series title is going to be the missionary expansion under Peter. What we're seeing is how the church was growing and the things that Peter and the people around Peter were doing. We're going to try to draw lessons from this section of the book of Acts, not just so that we can be better knowledgeable of the book of Acts, although that's good and we should be, but because we want to see how does that then inform the way that we are doing ministry here today uh, in San Diego in 2023. And the... Perhaps a question that you might ask, and it's a, it's a perfectly logical question, why would we look to an ancient book 
to inform the way that we think about ministry today. And so one reason is because it's the word of God. And as the inspired word of God, we believe that it's useful for teaching and training and correcting uh, us and guiding us. But a second reason is because uh, there are some important similarities between the world in which Peter was doing ministry and our world today. Now that might jump out at you because the reality is that there's also a lot of differences, right? Uh, We live in a modern, uh, Western, individualistic, democratic society, whereas Peter lived in an ancient Middle Eastern imperial, right? He's he's a part of the Roman Empire, so it's a completely different form of government, uh, and a very much more of a communal uh, type of society where family structures are important in a way that, that they're not as important in our day and age. But there are several similarities, and one similarity in particular that I want to focus on for our time together this morning uh, is going to, I want to use the word Christendom in order to help draw that distinction. How many of you have ever heard the phrase Christendom? Okay, a few of you have. Right, so Christendom is a term that is used in uh, Christian circles and scholarly circles, Christian, non-Christian. Uh, to talk about this period of time in history where the church had a privileged position. Uh, One historian by the name of Dermot McCulloch, who's a historian in Oxford, uh, he writes this. He says, Christendom is the union between Christianity and secular power. Another uh, Roman Catholic bishop in L.A. by the name of John Curry writes this. He says, Christendom is the system dating from the 4th century by which governments upheld and promoted Christianity. Another historian by the name of Douglas John Hall, a Canadian historian, uh, writes, Christendom means literally the dominion or sovereignty of the Christian religion. So what do all three of those definitions have in common? Christianity and power being brought together, right? So Christendom is this period of time in human history where the church has an out, uh, outweight of influence in the way that Western society functions, okay? Now, this begins in 313 AD when Constantine, the Roman emperor at the time, becomes a Christian And he passes what's known as the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is where he legalizes Christianity and actually makes Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, And so that moment is the moment where Christianity goes from being this uh, marginal movement that's really localized uh, to one region of the world, and it becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. It, it, it all of a sudden gets incredible amount of, uh, of, of um, credibility in the Roman Empire. Uh, and so if you know your history, right, you know, you know, think of like uh, in the Middle Ages and the period up before the Reformation where the, the, the undisputed leader of Europe was the holy Roman emperor, right? And the reason he was the holy Roman emperor is because he was the emperor that the pope acknowledged as the religious leader, the, 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 the political leader uh, that really was the chief of all of Europe in many respects, not entirely, but in many respects. 
Uh, and so this is the period in which the church, much of its theology is formed. And then we get to this period now where we live today. Uh, that's called post-Christendom. So Peter is doing ministry in pre-Christendom and we are living in post-Christendom. So post-Christendom means that the, the privileged position of the church is no longer there. The privileged position of Christianity is no longer there. Now, when does post-Christendom begin? Well, we don't have a, a really firm date that we can point to for post-Christendom. Uh, Douglas John Hall, the, uh, the, the Canadian uh, historian that I referenced to earlier, he and many others point to this period in the 1700s known as the Enlightenment. And that the Enlightenment was this period where rationalism and all these different ways of thinking start taking root. And that begins to, to, to create little cracks in the foundation of Christendom. Okay? Uh, Dermot McCulloch, the Oxford historian that I referenced a second ago, uh, states that the end of World War I, where the dominant Christian nations had been defeated and it completely overturned structures in Europe. And as a result, that also added to the weakening of the, the privileged position that Christianity had in society. What nobody argues is that we today live in a post-Christendom world. Um, now, what does that actually mean? Because you might hear that and you might think, well, then that just means Christianity has no voice. And that's actually not what post-Christendom means. Uh, what post-Christendom means is that the privileged position that the church had during that period of time known as Christendom, that is no longer the case. But the influence of Christianity continues uh, onto our day. And that's part of the tension that many of us feel uh, because we, especially those of us who are 40 and older, uh, remember periods of time where, where it still felt like Christianity had a much more privileged voice than it does today. And, and so you think to 30 years ago and the, the, the relationship that the church just in the United States, obviously Europe is a different story, Australia, New Zealand, these other Western countries, every, every different Western world, section of the world, uh, this works itself out in different ways, but we're talking about the United States. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, we were in a post-Christendom world, but it didn't feel that way as much as it feels today. Uh, and so think of 15 years ago, think about four years ago, this time, 2020, is a completely different universe than today, isn't it? We all know this, right? Uh, and so what's happened is that, that post-Christendom, the privileged position that the church has had is gaining less and less and less. And, but you and I, in many of the circles that we inhabit, don't experience that in all of its fullness. And so it can be really hard and frustrating for us to account for this faith that I hold on to has had this privileged position and the temptation for many of us is to want it to have that privileged position again. We're going we're gonna to ask that question in a moment. Is that the right posture to have? 
Uh, And so the book of Acts is really helpful for us because what we see is how the church did ministry outside of this period of time known as Christendom, right? The book of Acts is showing us how ministry was done in a pre-Christendom world. And so for those of us living in a post-Christendom world, uh, there are things to be learned. And that's what we're going to do over the coming weeks. We're going to look at uh, how this works itself out. Now, just so you know, like we're not just doing this here. The staff has been reading a book called Wisdom from Babylon, which takes this concept of a pre-Christendom and post-Christendom world uh, and says, how, what lessons can we learn from this particular book called Wisdom from Babylon? Saying, what wisdom can we learn from the ancient church? What wisdom can we learn from other sections of the world that didn't uh, didn't go through Western secularism like we have, what can we learn from countries in Europe that are further ahead than we are? Uh, just yesterday, Kate and I were in the car driving around and we listened to a podcast called uh, This Cultural Moment, I think is the name of the podcast. Uh, it was a great, so this is the kind of stuff that Kate and I talk about, listen, read all the time. So if this stuff interests you, by all means, hit us up. Uh, We would love to talk to you more about this. All right, so that's the intro to the series. And I'm already 10 minutes in. And you're thinking, have mercy. This guy is going to go really long. I'm not, I promise. Um, Real quick, super quick, super, super quick uh, review of Acts. Acts 1 and 2, Jesus goes back up to heaven. We call that ascension. Holy Spirit comes down from heaven. We call that Pentecost. Acts 2 and 3, Peter preaches this powerful sermon after Holy Spirit comes down. Lots of people come to faith in Christ. Church is off and running. Acts 4 through 8, we have this back and forth of uh, gospel being preached, miracles being done, people coming to faith in Christ, church growing. Combined with uh, internal opposition, uh, struggles over race, money, uh, care for the poor, uh, external opposition, and it all culminates in uh, Stephen preaching a sermon and being killed. And it is after Stephen preaches a sermon and gets killed that all of a sudden the pressure on the church really expands. And this next slide shows you the, the way that the church scatters out of Jerusalem. Uh, no, go back one slide. Go forward two slides. Is that the only slide you have? There's two maps. All right. Well, the church scatters to a bunch of different places. I don't think that's the map. I think that's the map of Peter. Peter goes on a missionary journey. And this is the missionary journey of Peter here, where he's going to these different places in order to see what's going on as all of these Christians have spread out in these different ways. Uh, So what we're going to do now, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see that the ministry of Peter follows the example of Jesus. It is done in the power of Jesus and it points to the salvation that Jesus brings. Okay. But the the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look first at Aeneas and then we're going to look at Tabitha and then we're going to make application. So we're going to do just super quick, dip the toe in, see these three themes and then apply that. And that application will be long today. All right. So number one, we've got Aeneas. So uh, this right here is a mosaic from 
a, the Palatine Chapel in Palermo, Sicily. It's a beautiful mosaic that I stumbled upon this past week. So Peter goes up to Lydda. If you look at the map, what you'll see is it's halfway up to the coast from the, from the city of Jerusalem. And you have to remember that the book of Acts is a two-volume history of the Jesus movement in its early stages. Uh, so the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts we read them together. It's one volume, as it were, of the history of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, And so when we read the story, we need to have the book of Acts kind of in the back of our heads, all right? So what happens? Peter goes to Lydda. Uh, He finds Aeneas, Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. Now, Can anybody think of a story in the ministry of Jesus where something similar to this happens? Yeah, Jesus healed all kinds of paralytics, but there's one story in particular that really stands out, and that is found in Luke chapter 5. Do you remember what happens in Luke chapter 5? It's the one with the roof, right? So Jesus is teaching in a house. Uh, These friends are bringing an individual who's paralyzed. He's on a mat. They can't get in. It's too crowded. So they're like, hey, we know what we're going to do. They go up on the roof. They start tearing the roof apart and they lower the guy down. So much there to talk about, but I'm already 15 minutes into a 30 minute sermon. Um, so, uh, and, and if you pay attention to the, to the language that's used, which really interesting is that uh, Peter says almost exactly the same kind of thing that Jesus says. Not exactly. There's actually a really important difference, but it's very similar. Uh, both of them look at these individuals and say, Get up, take your mat, walk. Uh, Now, what's fascinating about Peter, so here, so so mini point one of Aeneas, right? He's following the example of Jesus. He's healing paralytic people just like Jesus did. But Jesus does that in his own power because he's the second person of the Trinity. Peter is not the second person of the Trinity. And so therefore Peter has to do it in the power of Jesus. How does he do it in the power of Jesus? What does he say? Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. But not only does he say Jesus Christ heals you, but there's this really fascinating word that Peter uses here. You and I are reading this in English, so we're not going to pick up on the word. But for the original audience, they would have been like, whoa, why is that word being used? Uh, So another way of translating that would be, Uh, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise up and roll your mat. Now, if I use the word rise up, what, what, what word, what thing that Jesus does starts popping into your head? Resurrection, right? So the Greek word that's being used there, anisteme, is the, is one of the words that's often used to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So in effect, what I will submit to you is that what Peter is basically saying is this, Aeneas, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, is now allowing you to rise up from your mat. He's doing ministry in the power of Jesus, right? He, he, he calls on Jesus by saying in the name of Jesus, but he's, he's intentionally, Luke is intentionally inserting a word that is a resurrection term. And what's the result? The result, if you look at 
verse 35 is that all those in Lydda and Sharon saw what happened and they turned to the Lord. So example of Jesus, power of Jesus, and points to the salvation that Jesus brings. That's Aeneas. What about Tabitha? Same, same, same thing happens. Now, word spread. So if we look at the map, again, another mosaic from the same chapel. Uh, word spread. So you can see uh, the, the orange line is the line that Peter takes to get to Lydda or, or, or a lot. Uh, and then the green line is to the coastal town of Joppa. Uh, 10 miles. It's about 10 miles. So in a world before Twitter, Instagram, and all kinds of like fast media ways of communication, word spreads that Peter is in Lydda and the disciples in Joppa hatch a plan. So what's going on? Tabitha is sick. Tabitha has died. And after she has died, the disciples, two disciples in particular, take it upon themselves. They're sent from the church in Joppa and they go down 10 miles. They walk down to Lydda and say, Peter, come quick. She's already dead. Peter, come quick. Peter comes. Now, what do we know about Tabitha? This is actually really important. Uh, So Tabitha is a disciple. We're told that she is a disciple. Interestingly, this is the only time that the word disciple appears in the feminine form. Greek words, some Greek words can uh, appear in masculine or feminine gender. It's different than the English language. It's more, more similar to Spanish where words can change gender. Uh, depending on how they're being used. This is the only time that the word disciple appears in its feminine form. It's an interesting interesting thing to note. She was uh, devoutly concerned for the poor and the widows. So much so that she had really, it seems, uh, built an entire ministry and was leading a ministry of caring for the poor people and especially the widows in Uh, in the city of Joppa. So that when Peter arrives, the widows who are there mourning are showing Peter, this is what she made for us, right? That they actually have the the, the articles of clothing that Tabitha prepared for them are are there in in the room where they're mourning. So this is a woman who had a profound ministry and a profound impact in the church in Joppa. So much so the two disciples take it upon themselves to go down to Lydda in order to find Peter. Um, and you can feel the sense of urgency in the narrative. Uh, so we're meant to stop and go, huh, what was it? There's something significant about this woman and the ministry that she had. So the disciples go down. Now, I'm going to read the story again. I want you to think, what story in the life of Jesus reminds me of this story? They're probably going to get, don't, 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 don't get the answer yet. Don't get the answer yet. You're probably going to think of two stories and you're, you would be right, but there's one that's better than the other. All right. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, Peter went with them. And when he arrived, so remember disciples come, Peter come quick. Peter went with them. He arrived. He was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while he, she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. She took her, uh, he took her by the hand, helped her at her feet. Then he called the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Now, what story? 
Jairus' daughter. So some of you said Lazarus before, and that's true. Lazarus does have a parallel, but the parallel with Jairus' daughter is staggering, okay? So in both stories, you have individuals go to Peter or Jesus and say, come quick. In both stories, by the time that Peter or Jesus arrives, the person is already dead. In both stories, they have to go up into a room in order to get to the deceased body. In both stories, you have people mourning. In both stories, everybody is sent out of the room, except in, the, in Jairus' case, Jairus and his wife get to stay in the room. In both stories, we, are, we read, get up. It says in, um, in, in Luke, it says, little girl, get up. And in Acts, it says, Tabitha, get up. But here's the really interesting uh, kind of hyperlink within the gospels. Mark's version, Mark's version of this story adds this interesting parenthetical comment. In Mark's version of the story, it says, little girl, get up, which me, which is translated Talitha Kumi. Talitha, Tabitha, right? This is just a really interesting kind of intertextual link that's happening there that I think is adding one more layer of connection and saying Peter is following in the ministry model of Jesus but he's also doing it in the power of Jesus. There are, again, two clues for us to see that Peter is doing this, not in his own power, but in the power of Jesus. What's the first clue? What does he do? He prays, right? The first clue is that he doesn't just simply say, Tabitha, get up. He kneels and he prays. You remember that story where they were trying to cast demons out and they couldn't cast demons out? And, and then Jesus shows up and says, get out of there. And then they get out of there. And the disciples are like, Jesus, what gives? And Jesus says to them, what? This one comes out with prayer, right? Peter understands now there's something about the, the, the ministry that Jesus had, the way that Jesus discipled Peter, that he understands this particular situation I cannot do in my own strength. And so he prays. And as a result, she's able to get up. But there's a second thing, right? Same word. It's the same word again. Talitha, Tabitha, anistemi. Tabitha, arise. That's the word that's used there. And so for the Greek reader, they're reading this and they're going, oh, there it is again. This resurrection term is being used. So in effect, What Peter is saying is Tabitha, Jesus, who rose from the dead, is now allowing you to rise from the dead. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? So so this is the power of Peter. It's not, no, delete that, scratch, no, 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 no. It's not the power of Peter. It's the power of Jesus that Peter is tapping into in order to be able to have this kind of ministry. And what's the result? The result is that, verse 42, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed. Peter follows the example of Jesus. He does it in the power of Jesus. And as a result, um, the salvation that Jesus brings is brought about. Okay, now let's apply this. 
All right? So um, we living in a post-Christendom world need to look to the pre-Christendom models of the church to inform the way that we do ministry. And so what that means is that we need to consider what are the ways that we are to follow the example of Jesus? What are the ways that we are to tap into the power of Jesus so that the salvation of Jesus might become known to other people? All right? So what are the examples that we see from Jesus and his disciples in the story? Well, first of all, you see the example of Peter. He's on the move. Right? There's something about the, the nature of the Christian faith that God calls us to follow him. And so Peter's following, it's not explicit, but I think it's there, that Peter's uh, following Jesus. Secondly, we have Peter's example of prayer. Peter shows us an example that ministry in a pre-Christendom and in a post-Christendom world has to be a ministry that is done in prayer. That's one of the ways that we tap into the power of God. We see uh, the disciples in Joppa give us the example of caring for the sick and dying. Tabitha gives us the example of caring for the poor and the widow. And I'm not going to press this too hard, but wouldn't it be interesting? We don't know this, but wouldn't it be interesting that if, if perhaps Tabitha's trade was to be a seamstress, And so what we're actually seeing there is not just a concern for the poor, but that she's using her vocation in order to serve other people. Not going to press that too hard because I don't know that, but it's a question I've been thinking about all weekend long. And we didn't even talk about Simon. So the passage ends and it says that Simon, uh, a tanner, so a guy who makes leather, uh, invites Peter into his house. Simon gives us the example of hospitality. What if... What if in this tension that we feel, we're trying to do ministry in this context. And when I use ministry, like I'm not just talking about what I do or what people paid by the church do or people who like have paychecks from ministries. I'm talking about all of us, right? Ministry, I'm using ministry in the terminology of saying that all of us are called to serve God and serve other people in the various callings that, um, that Jesus has given us, right? So I'm speaking now in the, from the context of, of all of us share a priesthood that we refer to as the priesthood of all believers, okay? Um, what if, what if, uh, as we feel this tension of being in a post-Christendom world and the temptation is that we see these ways that we were, that, that, that the church has had these, this, uh, this privileged position What if the strategic way that Jesus is calling us to serve him right now is not to try to get back into those privileged positions? Side note, that's what Christian nationalism is trying to do. Okay? What if the call of Jesus now is not to try to fight our way back to the privileged position, but what if the call of Jesus is for us to actually go to the margin? What if the call of Jesus is for us to actually go to the places where brokenness is happening? And that's not to say that we ignore the center of power, right? Peter, Paul, these guys went to emperors and, and, and leaders and they presented the gospel, but not so that they could get power, but so that they could call people to faith in Christ. See, this is, this is the tension that we face now. These are the kinds of questions that the church has been asking and that we as a church need to be asking. 
what, what, is the, what is the missionary movement? What is, the, what is the redemptive edge that Jesus is calling Harbor City to? And as we follow Jesus as a church, what does it look like for us to, to make that decision? Which direction is Jesus calling us to? Church, Harbor City, great church, love y'all. Okay. Um, we are not the hope of San Diego. We're just not. The resurrected Jesus is the hope of San Diego. All right? We are one of many churches that Jesus will delight to use. But whether or not Jesus uses us is partly on us. And so... What do we do? We rely on the power. So we follow the example of, of our, of our uh, brothers and sisters in the faith, and we, we rely on the power of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus. Uh, lots of things we could talk about. I want to focus on one, and that's prayer. Uh, it, it really strikes me that, that um, Luke decided to put this note in there that Peter knelt down to pray before he rose, uh, before he... Um, brought Tabitha up from the dead. Uh, prayer, you've heard me say this before. I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken, uh, broken record, uh, but I believe this in my heart. Uh, if we are not a church of prayer, we are not doing the work that Jesus is calling us to do. Uh, we can do lots of great things, uh, lots of beautiful things, lots of things that Jesus will use. Um, but if we aren't doing it with prayer, we're not doing it in the power of Jesus. We're doing it in our own strength. And so what that means is that we need to individually be people of prayer. And that means that we need to be corporately a people of prayer. And so, he, you know, heads up, when we get into Lent, we're going to do another one of those seasons of prayer like we did over Advent and we did this past uh, a Lent a year ago because we need to be a people who pray. This is, um, this, is, this is just a taste of what this series is going to be like. Right? What we're going to be doing is we're going to be asking hard questions. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. We're going to be asking hard questions and saying, what is Jesus calling us to? Uh, from there... Uh, to give you a preview from there, we're going to go into a series over Lent where we're going to be saying one of the things that has to mark the church in this particular moment is that we need to grieve the brokenness of this world. And so we're going to spend some time focusing on lament uh, and, 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 and trying to learn the language of lament as a church. And then because Jesus rose from the dead, after that season of lament, we're going to spend four weeks exploring the ramifications of Jesus's resurrection. Uh, that's, that's what we're doing through April. Uh, and, and it's all, I've been trying really hard to really kind of intentionally think through this sermons, these three different series to tie them all together, because this is, I'm trying to lead us in a certain direction. And that is the direction that I shared with you earlier. We're going to talk a little bit more next week. I want us to really be intentionally exploring this year. What is Jesus calling us to? And what does it look like for us to be his people, to have this marked Christian identity that shapes who we are and how we lead, all right? I hope you are as excited as I am about what I trust and pray that Jesus is gonna do as we go through this journey together, all right? Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you that you are the one who through the power of your resurrected uh, son uh, worked through Peter and used uh, sisters and mothers in the faith like Tabitha uh, in order to serve your people. Um, Lord, we thank you for the example of these disciples and of Simon and of Tabitha and of Peter that we saw this morning. Help us today as we consider what it means to be your people, as we consider what it means to be your church in this particular moment in history that you've called us to be in, um, what it looks like for us, Lord, to follow your example, the example of your saints before us as well, to rely on your power. And we trust and we hope and we pray that the result of that was that is that your salvation will be known in the places where we live, work, and play. Uh, Jesus, if you do this, uh, we will give you all the glory. Uh, we will give you all the honor, uh, and we will delight in being used by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.